Well, we are looking forward to the evening that we have. We're taking a break in our study of the perfections of God. And in light of the fact that there is an election coming up in a few weeks, we thought that it would be very, very helpful to spend some time this evening with some very qualified guests to talk through issues related to the government and the state of the government today, the state of our culture, and our role as Christians in the culture, our responsibility before the government, and how we can do those things in a way that is most glorifying to our God and Savior. So that is the focus for this evening. You men sent in a lot of questions, and I thank you for that. We're going to try to get through many of them, but I can tell you already, uh, we won't get to all of them. Uh, But I have highlighted the ones that I will ask our guests uh, that I think are most representative of uh, what is on your minds. And of course, a special greeting to those of us, to those of you who are joining us uh, through the live stream as well. Well, before we go any further, we do want to ask that the Lord would give us a wonderful time of, of, uh, of fellowship tonight around his truth as we think of, of our uh, submission to a, a biblical worldview in light of the world in which we live today. So let's look to him and ask him for his blessing. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the opportunity we can come in the middle of the week and gather here in a a wonderful place that you have in your providence carved out for us. We thank you for the ministry of this church as it has impacted so many people around the world, but we think of our own lives and what you have done through Pastor John and, and the other elders here at the church and through the believers here that meet week after week. We thank you for the wonderful fellowship that we have here on Wednesday nights with the men. And as we think of the world around us and the direction it is headed, as we think of the state of the government and the culture, our hearts are certainly heavy. And as we see the hostilities grow, the questions about our role, our duty to the government and within society certainly rise to the surface, and we seek your insight in your word as to how we can live and please you in this world. We pray for our guests as they answer these questions and provide that insight. Use them as your instruments tonight to bring clarity and understanding, faithfulness to your word. Give them that as we discuss these things, and we pray this all in the name of of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we are delighted this evening to have three special guests with us, and I just want to give a brief introduction of each one of them and then uh, give them just a few moments to fill us in on a little bit more of the details. Uh, But I'll start at the far end with Dr. Greg Fraser, uh, who is Dean of Political Science, Dean of the School of Humanities at the Master's University has been there for many, many years, and he is especially helpful in these kinds of discussions because of his interest in the founding of the United States and has written extensively on that topic and participated in various dialogues and debates and discussions related to the founding fathers and so on. So he's our history guy. In fact, I I found this out about him yesterday. I said I was going to send him a text message and he responded and said, I don't do texts. He says, I'm the only person 
on the face of this planet who doesn't carry a cell phone. And I thought to myself, he's our history guy. He's still living in it. You do use a computer, though, right? You do. You, okay. Absolutely. Okay. So, not a typewriter, an actual computer. Okay. All right. So, we're glad to have you here, Dr. Fraser. Beside him, as, as we all know, it's uh, Phil Johnson, Executive Director at Grace to You, and has been involved in uh, the ministry of our pastor since 1981, I think it is. So, 40 years you've, you've served by editing his books and sermons and then overseeing the, the media ministry of, of Grace to You. You're an elder here, pastor of, of Grace Life, and uh, all of us have heard your preaching and are so thankful for that. And uh, you have a considerable social media presence, although I have to say you had a... a, a yeah, that's, that's diminished now. <laughs> greatly. I hear you're in jail, so... Actually, yeah, I am probably off Twitter for good because... Uh, the uh, the ransom that they're demanding for me to come back would be I'd have to admit that uh, that I was guilty of hate speech for saying that yeah. it's it's grooming activity to have a cross-dressing security guard escorting kindergartners across the street. I'm not going to say that, yeah. so I think I'm off for good, which is a blessing. Actually, I have a whole lot of more time now. Yeah. So that is that is more or less the the. Uh the stipulation that has been placed. You would have to acknowledge that you I'd made a post saying that these drag queen crossing guards at elementary school crosswalks are, that that amounts to government-sponsored grooming. And they kicked me off for saying that. Wow. Well, we'll be talking more about that this evening, obviously, and the direction of censorship and how we as Christians respond to that. So, but thank you for being here, Phil. We know you're, you're very busy and and uh, someone who is uh, probably on the road more than he is here at home is our guest, Daryl Harrison. And, and you're the dean of social media at Grace to You, so you oversee all the, the media for, for Grace to You and the, the media ministry from John MacArthur. You also uh, have a pretty substantial blog, just thinking for myself. And then as well, you have a, a podcast which is a very significant podcast that you do with Virgil Walker, and, and you can take a moment in just a moment to explain a little bit more of that. And I, and I know that you have particular interests in critical race theory and how that is creeping through or overtaking so much of society. So your insights as well tonight will be so very, very helpful, and, and we're looking forward to hearing your answers. Now, with that said, why don't we start with you and tell us a little bit more. Fill in the details that I didn't that would be helpful for our men to know to pray for you and also just understand how the Lord is using you today. Yeah, thanks for that opportunity. Uh, Recent uh, job title change uh, at Grace to You. My current title now is Director of Digital Platforms at Grace to You, but the social media is still falling under my responsibility. Uh, So um, where do I start? Uh, So my day job when I'm here is in that role at Grace to You. However, um, I did come to L.A. about three and a half years ago, my wife Melissa and I, with uh, a, a personal ministry of my own that I've been doing for many years, uh, writing for a blog titled Just Thinking for Myself, as you mentioned, Brad. But then out of that blog grew uh, the Just Thinking podcast, which uh, some of you may be familiar with. The podcast, uh, as of December of this year, has been in existence for five years. I co-host it with my good brother and uh, friend Virgil Walker. Virgil is the executive director of operations at G3 Ministries back in Atlanta. 
Um, and uh, like I said, the podcast has been in existence for five years. We're approaching six million downloads um, uh, as I speak here uh, today. Um, and we've gained, by God's grace and mercy, uh, an incredible reputation around the world for being one of the trusted places that folks can go to hear uh, sociocultural issues be addressed expositionally, which is uh, one reason why our podcast episodes are so lengthy. Sometimes our episodes can go two and a half, three, three and a half hours. We're an expositional podcast. So what you hear in the pulpit every Sunday here at Grace Community Church, we do that same thing behind the microphone. We exposit topics, we exegete terms, um, and we uh, uh, hopefully are edifying the church through what we do by helping equip them to address a lot of these issues that you mentioned, Brad, through a biblical worldview. Yeah, that's wonderful. Six million downloads. And how many, how many podcasts have you done so far over, those, over the years? <clears throat> we just released episode 120 last Wednesday. It's titled Indwelling Sin in Believers. Uh, Indwelling Sin in Believers. So that episode is trying to help uh, believers sort of navigate that tension between the fact that, yeah, we are regenerate, but even so we have remaining sin within us that we have to deal with. Uh, that's a two-hour and 45-minute episode. Um, but I, I would encourage those of you who are not familiar with the podcast, if you're a podcast listener, you can uh, download the Just Thinking podcast on any podcast platform uh, where you happen to get your podcast. Uh, but, yeah, episode 120 was just released uh, last week. So 120 episodes, close to 6 million downloads. It's amazing, especially with that kind of content that you'd have that kind of of interest. That, that's so encouraging to hear. Wonderful. Phil, fill us in on some more details about your life, what's going on, and what you're busy with these days. Yeah, I think you covered it all, actually. I've, uh, I've been uh, editing books for John MacArthur since 1981. For the first couple of years, I was employed at Moody Press and working with him. Came here in 1983, so, and the, the week I started was Shepherd's Conference that year. It was okay. the first week in March. So this coming March will be my 40th anniversary at Grace to You, and all things continue as they have been from yeah. the beginning. It's amazing. That is, that is a great track record, 40 years. Uh, praise the Lord for that, and, and uh, it's something that I mentioned from time to time, but how I uh, was uh, eventually a- ended up here from considering the fact that I grew up in a farm in Canada was through a Grace to You broadcast uh, that was uh, beamed out of uh, Winnipeg, Canada, and uh, that's how I got to know about this ministry. So, and, and you would have been there already at that time. when. Yeah, in fact, um, I remember the, the agency in Canada that the guys that ran it lived in Winnipeg. Oh, did they? So, yeah. Okay. And s- still do, I guess. Okay. I think we still work with them. So, okay. uh, I was glad to get the broadcast on in Winnipeg. I didn't know you'd be the fruit, but... <laughs> That's a great well, blessing. Yeah, well, the interesting thing about that station was, it, you know, in Canada, everything has to be multicultural. So right before uh, Grace to You would be some Catholic uh, program, and afterwards would be some rank charismatic program. So you had uh, Grace to You right in the middle. So yeah. that's wonderful. Yeah. And then, Greg Fraser, why don't you tell us a little bit about how things are going at TMU and, and uh, what you're busy with there? Yeah, I'm the, the, as you said, the dean of the School of Humanities. I'm also professor of history and political studies. That's, that's what I consider my main job is teaching. I'm a dean because they asked me to do that. Um, I've actually been at Grace Church for 47 years, since 1975. Um, and uh, I'm a, a leader in Sojourners Fellowship Group, and I teach the longest-running Bible study 
at Grace Church. Been going for, I don't know, Dick, what is it, 47 years, 48 years, something like that. Not me the whole time. And uh, this is my 35th year of teaching at the Master's University. I started when I was five. <laughs> yeah. How many students do you know? How many students have gone through your classes? Wow. I have no idea. It's thousands. Okay. That would be amazing to know. Yeah. Well, again, thank you, men, for being here. And, of course, the topic for tonight is quite discouraging when we see where the government and the culture is going. So before we get into that, I do want to start with something very important. What encourages you today when you look across the landscape? What is that which gives you most encouragement? And uh, Daryl, I'll start with you. Yeah, I would have to say the one thing that encourages me is resting on the sovereignty of God. Um, I recall something that uh, the late Dr. R.C. Sproul once said. He said that there are no maverick molecules flying around in the universe. And uh, the sovereignty of God, uh, to uh, repeat uh, a phrase, uh, uh, I don't know if, Phil, if it was Spurgeon who said this, but that the sovereignty of God is the pillow that I rest my head on every night. Um, so that encourages me in spite of what we're seeing going on in the culture and society today. Um, just to append to that, another thing that encourages me is uh, that the word of God is being tested as being true, given what we're seeing. Uh, God's Word tells us that what we're seeing in the culture today is exactly what we're supposed to see. Uh, so although it may look negative, uh, disappointing, you, you may feel uh, uh, disheartened with respect to what we're seeing, just understand that the Word of God has already told us that this is exactly what's supposed to happen. Uh, so you, you have the sovereignty of God and then the veracity of His Word as being uh, uh, two things that encourage me every day. Good, Phil, how would you answer that? Yeah, you know, it's tempting to feel like Elijah, like I only yeah. I am left, and yet we know that's not the truth. Uh, and what encourages me is the realization that I think the faithful remnant is getting larger, mm. more numerous. Mm. I remember back when I was first saved, I, I came to Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is sort of the headquarters of the charismatic movement, Oral Roberts yep. University and all of that, I uh, came to Christ through just reading the Scriptures, and I was looking for a church. I had come out of a, a really liberal Methodist background, and my only criteria was I wanted to go to a church where the pastor would open the Bible and teach from it. Yeah. And it was really hard to find one in those days. Uh, now, if you went to Tulsa, there are at least five or six churches that are pastored by TMS grads where you can get really solid Bible teaching. I think the numbers of faithful people are growing. If you look at, if you look at the world as a whole, it's clear that society is getting worse and things are getting mm-hmm. bleak. Uh, but I'm not pessimistic. I, you can't be pessimistic and be a Calvinist like Daryl said, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not a pessimist. I'm a Calvinist. Yeah. And I know that in the end, truth wins. And uh, I know that God has always uh, advanced his kingdom, not through majority rule, Mm -hmm. but through that faithful remnant. And the remnant is growing, and I'm encouraged by that. Yeah, Yeah, these are purifying years, aren't they? Yeah. Greg, what what do you think? Yeah, Daryl stole my answer. Did you see my... No. Um, (laughs) I, when I speak to churches um, about how to live biblically in political society, I always end, I start, and I end with the same thing, which is God is on his throne. Yeah. And to me, that's the most encouraging thing, is that I know that nothing is happening is surprising God. 
um, and it's all according to his plan. And so that's really important. I'm also encouraged by um, our graduates that I see as they go out and they, and they report back to me the things that they're doing. That's encouraging. And then a third thing is uh, the fact that we can actually go to the sovereign God who's on his throne in prayer and that he listens to his people. I was on a Christian radio program once debating a guy on an issue, and I gave about six reasons or six things that we could do with regard to an issue. And then I, the seventh one was, and we can pray. And then this was a Christian radio program, and, and so a caller called in and said, So, Professor, um, you're, you're saying all we can do is pray. And I said, well, actually, no, that's not what I said. I, I listed six other things. But let's say I didn't say the other six things. Let's say all we can do is pray. All we can do is call on the sovereign God of the universe. Yeah, well, our hands are really tied. <laughs> and so that's, that's encouraging to me that not only is he on his throne, but he, we have access to that throne. Yeah. Good. Indeed, the Lord is on his throne, and he does what he pleases. And he uses... He uses instruments to mediate his rule, and one of those that we read of in Scripture is the government. And so I'll start with one of the the more specific questions here. Uh, As we see government encroachment and uh, tyranny start to become a reality in in this country, how would you, uh, Dr. Fraser, how would you define biblically the role of the government? Why has God instituted the government? What is its purpose? government's fundamental purpose is to restrain evil, and it does that two ways, as Paul explains in Romans 13, that is by promoting good and punishing evil, punishing bad, just like parents do with their children, if they're good parents. Um, they praise the children when they do right, and they punish them when they do wrong, and that's fundamentally what, what the role of government is in the world, and, and God has established it uh, in order to you know, God makes the promise in Genesis that he's not going to bring another flood and destroy the whole earth because of the, the wickedness of mankind. And he instituted civil government to restrain man's evil perpetually uh, through government so that it, the evil never reaches, which tells you something about the evil before the flood, but the evil never quite reaches that level of which God is, has to destroy it. At least it won't until the, the, the end. And so... To restrain evil, that's the fundamental purpose of government. Okay. Anything to add to that? Yeah, I would just add one thing. I, I, I totally agree with Dr. Fraser uh, there, but I would also say as you look across the landscape of culture today, fewer and fewer things are being considered evil. Yeah. Um, you, you, so, so government, as a result, um, is in a position to where as, 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 as evil continues to be legislated as good, the, the role of government in restraining that evil is becoming less and less uh, effective because there are fewer and fewer things that are considered evil uh, today. Um, um, my wife and I are uh, originally from Atlanta. We moved here about three and a half years ago, and I have to tell you this. Uh, seeing what's going on in, in, uh, in California legislatively is like nothing I've ever seen uh, before. Uh, the, um, the, the, the degree to which evil is being legislated um, here uh, uh, is like any other place I've ever lived, and I've lived all over uh, the country. Uh, uh, so I, th- I think it's interesting, if not ironic, 
that, that we see on the other extreme of what Dr. Fraser is talking about with respect to the role of government, one of those roles being to restrain evil, is, is that government is uh, making that responsibility increasingly impotent by uh, in, in endorsing evil uh, w- within the boundaries of its responsibility to restrain evil. It, it sounds contradictory, but that's exactly what the government is doing. Can I just add something? Yeah. Yeah, I think an important thing to remember is that governments can't help but restrain evil because God has established them for that purpose. And so even though ungodly rulers don't want to restrain evil, they nonetheless do. Now, they also commit evil. Every government that has ever existed restrains evil and commits evil. Some governments are better at restraining evil than others. Just like if I played basketball with LeBron James, we'd both be playing basketball, but one of us would be a lot better at it. Uh, Governments all restrain evil, and they all commit evil because they're run by fallen human beings. Mm -hmm. And so we ought not to get too, um, I don't know, in, in despair over the government committing evil uh, because every government throughout history has committed evil. Uh, and, and the United States is a government is committing evil now, but the United States government has also allowed the murder of 60 million people uh, legally. And so we've had evil all along, and, the, and it's, a, it's having a different form now. But nonetheless, government restrains evil as well. Now, to follow up with that, I'm going to ask you a question here, Daryl. In terms of the, uh, the responsibility of, of governments to follow the, the uh, biblical mandates, here's the question that was submitted. In what ways should we expect that the different levels of government to rule in accordance with biblical values? So, uh, what role should the Bible have in shaping public policy if God has delegated uh, authority to the governments, to what extent are they doing their job only if they follow the laws of the one who delegated that authority? Yeah, I'm reminded of uh, what John Calvin writes in his uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion, where he, of course, in his day, he uses the word magistrates, but he says that essentially that all the magistrates, all the government officials, all of those whom we elect to office that have authority over the governed should see themselves as what he called God's lieutenants. They're God's lieutenants. And I think we can all understand what the inference there is, is that though, though we don't have this in reality, what we, I think what we should do is seek individuals who, who see themselves in that role as God's lieutenants, as God's proxies uh, here on earth in these, in these governing uh, roles. Uh, I think what we have today, uh, I think there needs to be a distinction made, and I don't know that uh, our politicians see this distinction. Um, I think there are those politicians who want to rule, and then there are those who want to govern. Um, I think we're inclined as Christians to seek out those individuals who want to govern us, and not those who want to rule us. Um, a, a, a passage of Scripture that comes to mind in that regard is Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8 which says, if you see oppression of the poor, I'm reading from the NASB, if you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official and there are higher officials over them. I think that's what we routinely see um, in government today. 
Um, uh, we have uh, candidates, men and women, who run for office who are who don't carry a biblical worldview with them. Um, they're not believers, so that we, we shouldn't expect them to carry a biblical worldview with them. But even those who may profess to be Christians, um, it's unfortunate that you um, you can't fully trust them either, because we're we're all being being sinful still, even our even in our regenerate state, we're still susceptible to the temptations and the allurements of power that, he, that these positions bring with them. Um, so so it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging uh, position to be in today with respect to who, uh, who we should support, who we should cast our votes for in terms of those who want to govern us. Um, I think there are certain issues and positions, and I know we're going to get into that later, Brad, that seemed rather obvious in terms of who a Christian can support and not support. Um, but again, I think the vast majority of, uh, of uh, those who want to be leaders, and especially those who are in leadership today, don't hold to a biblical worldview. And I, I would venture to say that I don't even, uh, I, would, I wouldn't have necessarily a, a, uh, a uh, deep degree of assurance that even many leaders who profess to be Christians understand what a biblical worldview is. Um, uh, so it, 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 it's, it's, it's a challenge, challenging day today for a Christian to, uh, to, to carry their biblical worldview into the voting booth and then have to decide um, who's the best sinner to, to cast my vote for. That's kind of where we are. One of the issues that often is raised with a biblical worldview in government is the, the issue today or the, the, the supposed issue of Christian nationalism. And Phil, I want to ask you this question here. There is a lot of talk about Christian nationalism, a biblical worldview hoisted upon the government. Uh, define for us the term, where it came from, how it is being used, and, and what are we to think about that, uh, that term and those, the arguments that surround that? Yeah, and it's a complex issue because uh, defining Christian nationalism yeah. depends on who's using the term. Yeah. Yeah. And that term has been co-opted lately by secular humanists who see any expression of conservative convictions, they will label it Christian nationalism. Uh, so, so you have to be cautious. Uh, I'm not in favor of Christian nationalism, which would be the notion that... Uh, well, let's just say it's a worldview that, that puts the identity of one's nation over our commitment to God. It sort of turns upside down the biblical principle that uh, our citizenship is in heaven, and we're sojourners on this, this earth. As Christians, we need to keep that perspective. Christian nationalism has flourished normally in nations where there's an established church, and uh, so it's a government-sponsored church and a mandated uh, uh, sort of membership in that church and commitment to whatever form of Christianity or quasi-Christianity uh, there is. And that can be dangerous, and it has been abused. And uh, I think in pretty much every nation I can think of where there has been a, a government-established church, the experiment has been a failure. Yeah. Uh, so we're not in favor of that. I don't think it's a threat in America. What you're hearing now is even from the media and the government, that Christian nationalism is the greatest threat to our culture. It's not really a threat at all, because you couldn't even have an established church in America by, by uh, you know, constitutional ruling. So I don't, I don't 
see that as a threat, but I think people throw that term around because it sounds ugly, and uh, nationalism is this devotion to one's nation that it can become sinister. I think there was a there was a strong strain of nationalism at the heart of Nazism, you know, for example. But um, the term is used these days as a, a sort of easy punching bag against people who are wary of globalism, which, frankly, I would class as the biggest threat to our culture. This globalist notion that, that uh, u- world unity is more important than national identity or, or even biblical convictions. Uh, so there's this war of worldviews going on, and uh, in, my, in my opinion, anyone who, who liberally uses that term Christian nationalism these days, you have to be cautious of because that's used as a club to silence conservatives. And uh, I, I think we need to be clear that conservative convictions, and particularly biblical convictions are not inherent expressions of Christian nationalism. Yeah, yeah it does seem to be simply a, a way to silence an opponent from a political view, just call him a Christian nationalist. There's a quote that I came across recently by a writer uh, who wrote a, a work entitled, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism? And he advocates in his book, he has this statement that says this, how hard is it to say both drag queens and fundamentalist Christians can use the local library and host events there. This isn't especially hard. No matter how deep original sin goes, no matter what the effects of the fall, and if it is possible, it is also desirable. So his argument is Christian nationalism is when we, when we argue that drag queens can't be right. the uh, crossing guards at a school. Like I said, or, any, any expression of biblical convictions, biblical morality, uh, or, or any form of moral conviction that bears a resemblance to uh, biblical morality. For example, let's take the example of Singapore, a very conservative country with pretty strict, you know, moral principles, and it's one of the more orderly societies in, in the world today. This, this no Christianity is not what's at the root of that. It's, it's the, but it, it is a set of moral convictions that actually echo that law that's inscribed on the human heart, is how Paul says it in Romans. So uh, it has a relationship to the same, it's the law of God. It's the same law you find in Scripture, but if it's inscribed in the human heart, then even non-Christians have some conscientious understanding, and should have a conscientious understanding that murder is wrong, that uh, thievery is wrong, that there are certain moral principles that don't change regardless of your society or generation. And um, I think that's what is under assault today. Uh, In these postmodern times, people want to say, no, all morality is simply a matter of perspective, your perspective versus my perspective. If I want to declare that I'm a woman, even though I'm genetically male, you're, you're obliged to respect that. And now they've marshaled um, both government power and media clout to try to enforce that on all of us. Yeah. And anyone who resists that is likely to be labeled a Christian nationalist, yeah. which is a total abuse of that expression and the reality of what Christian nationalism really is. Yeah, that's helpful. 
That's helpful. Uh, Dr. Fraser, a question here related to our response to government when government becomes tyrannical and even advocates evil. Uh, the question is this, is there ever a time when it is just for Christians to participate in violent resistance? Uh, for example, is this what should have been done by the churches in Nazi Germany? Or is there a, a basis for situational ethics uh, when we can uh, think that the end justifies the means and engage in some shady activity in order to resist the efforts of the government? How would you respond to that? Let me respond by quoting a somewhat well-known prominent pastor of a large local church. Um, In Dr. MacArthur's commentary on Romans, he says this, Neither the Lord nor his apostles give any justification for political revolt, rebellion, or civil disobedience. And in his... um, in a pamphlet that he did called The Christian and Government, which is also based on Romans 13, he says, it, it was not important whether the assertion of imperial authority by Caesar was just or unjust, good or wicked. Government, in whatever form it takes, exists for the purpose of God. That is why resistance and rebellion against government are resistance and rebellion against God. And uh, that's my answer, too, that resistance and rebellion are ungodly concepts. There's some form of the word uh, rebel 131 times, I think it is, in the Bible, and they're all negative. Uh, That's not the role of believers. Um, And so it's outside the realm of what a believer should do. What would you say regarding the churches in Nazi Germany, for example, when the Nazis were coming for the Jews should there have been an effort made by the churches to resist in a physical manner and even to lie to, in order to cover, uh, the, you know, to hide the, the Jews? Is there a basis then for situational ethics on that? Let me just add, by the way, what I, to what I just said so that, to make sure that there's no misunderstanding. We, we may have to disobey the governing authorities, as Grace Church has done. We may have to disobey the governing authorities when if they ask us to disobey God, that's the one exception to the rule of obedience. We, have, we may have to disobey, but resistance is, is, is not acceptable. In the, in the case of, the, of the, the Jews and the Nazis, it depends on whether you believe it's always wrong to lie or if there's such a thing as a righteous lie to protect people. So we'll let Phil answer that one. Yep. Yeah, that's where I was, I was going to go to these two guys. Is there a righteous lie? You know, I have a whole sermon on that. Uh, oh, okay. So it's somewhere online you, you can listen yeah. to. It's a complex issue, actually, yeah. because, uh, you know, God will kill, but he won't lie. One thing yeah. that Scripture specifically says God does not do is he yeah. will not lie. He cannot deny himself, and he is truth. And so I have to say, I can't find any moral justification for the idea of righteous lies on the one hand. I can't justify it morally. But if I were in a position like Corey Ten Boom, would I lie? Yeah, I, th- I probably would. I can't justify it. Uh, but, you know, I, if there's no other alternative to save a life, I probably would do it. Um, so that's not a satisfying answer, is it? Because yeah. I'm saying yeah. I can't justify it, 
but I would do it. Well, we have the example of Rahab in the Old Testament who did just that. She's not commended for telling a lie, but she is commended for her faith. Yeah. She's not condemned for telling the lie either, although I, I, don't think, I, I don't think lying is ever commended or justified. There are places in Scripture where it says the Lord will you know, send them a, a deceptive spirit, but it isn't the God himself who's denying the truth. Um, and in my mind, there, there is a difference between hiding the truth, refusing to speak the truth, which sometimes is necessary and morally justifiable, uh, and a lie, which is a denial of the truth. That's what God cannot do. He cannot deny himself. Mm-hmm. So if I could find a creative way to mislead or, or, or you know... Be silent, yeah. yeah. Yeah, just stay silent or or, you know, trick somebody, I I think that's justifiable. But denying the truth is hard for me to morally justify, but but I can imagine situations. I mean, I have a son who's a policeman. Suppose he had to do undercover work and got into a situation where his life is in jeopardy if he doesn't lie. I'd want him to lie. Uh, But again, I can't necessarily Mm -hmm. give you moral justification for that, but I take some comfort in the fact that Scripture acknowledges that there are degrees of sin. Some things are great sins, and some things are not. Uh, and Scripture doesn't doesn't condemn Rahab for that. Yeah. Yeah. On the other part of that question about and, and I, I I love the distinction that Dr. Fraser makes between uh, disobedience and rebellion. Yeah. You, the use of force, I think, is never uh, justified, especially for the church acting as a church. Uh, there are, uh, there's obviously justification for the use of force for a policeman or a soldier in a war and so on. That's not what I'm talking about. But for the church to use force against the government, uh, I think it was Spurgeon who said, look, Islam has advanced at the, the point of a sword, but Christianity never has. Mm. And we're commanded to render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and render to God that which is God's. Scripture specifically uh, gives the, the right to wield the sword to Caesar, never to the church. And I think any time churches have tried to, you know, marshal armies and, and uh, do crusades, that, that has always ended in failure because it's not what we're called to do. Jesus himself said he came not to destroy men's lives but to save them. And our task as a church is to spread the gospel. John MacArthur keeps saying, and, and he's absolutely right, that we don't want to treat the mission field as if they were the enemy. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so, yep. those are those are important distinctions and not always easy to make. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, Daryl, I'll ask you this question: When we see the the government becoming more tyrannical, one of the things that it can do, especially among us men, is create a kind of aggressiveness toward it. Uh, we see some of the, uh, or we hear of some of the actions of the FBI, for example, or the DOJ arresting those who are protesting at abortion clinics, and I'll get to that a little bit later, but there can elicit in us as men a kind of a, uh, uh, you know, aggressiveness in response to that, so that now any time that we see any kind of government figure, we're already defensive or on the offense, and my question to you in light of that would be, what counsel would you give to us as men that we would remain men, but be careful about the attitude that can sometimes come with that cynical view towards authorities. 
Yeah, I think uh, my response to that would be twofold. Number one, I think as men, um, as God has innately wired us to be as men, that, 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 that sort of reaction or response, as long as it's rooted in righteous indignation, indignation and not pride or selfish, uh, self, selfish self ends in terms of arrogance or trying to showboat or boast in your masculinity, I think we need to do a heart check to see what our motives are and responding the way we're responding. Uh, but then secondarily, and really alongside with that, we, re- we need to remember who we're representing. We are aliens and strangers in this world, and we are here as long as God has us breathing and our hearts beating. We are emissaries of Jesus Christ. And we need to remember the, that, number one, given that the Holy Spirit indwells us, we have the mind of Christ. And as, as, in that reality, we, do, we need to respond as Christ would, yielding our entire entire being physically and mentally to the leading of the Holy Spirit so that we respond under the, under the control of the Holy Spirit and not the flesh. Um, it's, it's interesting if I could tie this, uh, Brad, to, and I want to echo Phil's comments. I so appreciated Dr. Fraser's uh, distinction between rebelling and disobeying. Um, just this past weekend, I was at a conference in uh, Lubbock, Texas, and on the flight back to uh, Burbank from uh, Phoenix, I was watching a PBS documentary titled Eyes on the Prize, which is a story of the uh, civil rights movement uh, from the uh, mid to late 50s into the uh, decade of the 60s. And uh, disobedience was at the, uh, the, 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 is what undergirded that entire movement. Um, uh, so, so I think there, I think we, we, we are coming uh, as, as believers into a sort of milieu in society today where we're going to be confronted to make some really hard decisions. Uh, we're going to be faced with some situations and circumstances that are going to test whether what we say we believe are actually convictions. Talking about distinctions, there's a distinction that should be made between those two things. You know, you find out whether or not what you say you believe is a conviction when you're put in a situation where where that has to be tested. And I think as men, uh, we're going to be tested. We're We're already being tested. Um, in that regard. We'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, but again, we need to make up our minds right now. Uh, all of us right now, as we're gathered in this sanctuary, we're gathered here freely of our own volition. Uh, but if you've been paying any attention at all over the past three to five years, Christianity is uniquely under attack. Uniquely under attack. Um, and I don't mean that only in an ecclesiastical sense. Um, I mean that in the sense also of Christian virtue, Christian principles, such as uh, the institution of marriage, um, the, uh, the, even the Christian work ethic um, is being attacked. The biblical worldview obviously is being attacked. Um, and we're going to face some situations that we've never encountered before. Uh, so as men, we need to make that decision not only just for ourselves, but for our wives, our families. What stance are you going to take when that happens? Now, notice I didn't say if that happens. When that happens to you, because it's coming, it's coming. Um, What are you going to do? I want to let that marinate for a second. What are you going to do? 
as a Christian man, not just as a man, as a Christian man, would you be willing to go to jail? Would you be willing to lose your job because you refuse to recognize somebody by their preferred pronoun? How would you be willing to suffer? Thinking about Philippians 1.29, which you has been granted. It's been gifted in the Greek. It's been gifted to you, not only to believe in Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. So as men, as Christian men, we're going to be expected to take the lead in suffering. To take the lead. Are you prepared to do that? You need to make up your mind right now. Because when that situation comes, it's going to be too late. It's going to be too late. I'm really, I'm really glad that you used that word, because I wanted to use that word sometime tonight, suffer. Christianity, you know, Jesus said, the world hated, as John said in his message a couple weeks ago, the world hated me, they're going to hate you. And unfortunately, we have a strain of Christians in America, largely based on America's history, um, that isn't willing to suffer, they, they, they don't seem, think that they have to suffer. We can find some way around it, and it's going to come to the point at which we have to, we have to suffer, and that's the way that we show that we really belong to Christ. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah, could I just add one more thing to what Dr. Fraser said there? Uh, and at the risk of, well, on, on the podcast, we usually anger at least one person, so I may as well go for it here tonight. Um, the days of comfortable Christianity are over. Those days are gone. They're gone. And I think um, uh, to the extent where, uh, to the extent that for, for many years, I think the church has looked to uh, politics and especially political conservatism as being somewhat salvific in a way as it relates to uh, uh, maintaining our comfortable Americanized Christianity. I think we've looked at politics for far too long to protect that. So I think in a way, uh, although, uh, going back to what I said a couple of minutes ago, Christianity be, is, is being attacked, it's being targeted, although that is a reality, and I think there's, there's ample evidence to support my saying that, I think that's a blessing in disguise because it goes back to something Phil said about the remnant being uh, the remnant increasing. Um, I think it's a good thing that we're being made uncomfortable as Christians uh, in America to a certain extent, um, because it's under persecution that the church has flourished most across history. Uh, so I think what's happening right now is, is driving this remnant that Phil alluded to, to our knees in prayer is driving us to a more diligent, deeper study of the word of God. Um, uh, it's, 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 it's deepening our trust and faith in the Lord. Um, it's, it's uh, causing us to rest in his sovereignty and his providence. Um, I think this, uh, this suffering that we're seeing right now where, where, where God is allowing some of our needs to go unmet is, is probably what we need right about now. Uh, for for our own personal sanctification, for our sanctification as a broader body. Uh, so I say all that to say that uh, I don't want to use persecution because people tend to go to extremes when I hear that. Well, for lack of a better word, the persecution that the church is undergoing right now and will undergo 
um, is, is not all bad, not all a bad thing. Um, because I think there are, there, there are, there are benefits, uh, that come uh, from that for us as a body, for us as individuals. But again, I think it is, it is to be extremely naive, uh, to not recognize that the days of comfortable Christianity, the days of Christianity not being threatened here in America, those days are over. They're long gone. And it was that comfortable Christianity which spawned so many heresies anyway, so it'll be good that that is gone, right? Yeah, th- that's a great point, Brad. Um, you know, you look, at, um, you look at what's happening even within the church, that there are efforts to... Uh, uh, sort of distract us from uh, uh, the refining that God is doing in his church. And what I mean by that is that you've got individuals who I won't name here, but you've got individuals and ministries. Well, I will name one. Uh, the he gets us. Anybody heard, anybody familiar with the he gets us movement right now? Well, he, he gets us movement is a movement that's uh, funded by the ERLC uh, through the uh, Southern Baptist Convention that's running a $100 million ad campaign where they're running myriads of TV ads. Yeah, basically I've seen some of those TV ads. Yeah. Tr- tr- trying, to reduce, trying to reduce Jesus to be one of us. Uh, and I'm thinking of, uh, I think it's Psalm 50, verse 17, where Jesus chastises his people. He says, you thought I was just like you. Yeah. Well, this is what the he, he Gets Us campaign is trying to do. It's trying to... Uh, uh, make Jesus uh, uh, t- take him off his throne and reduce him down to us just to be a sort of a moralistic teacher so as to uh, uh, take away the sting of having to confess your sin and repent your sins, repent of your sins uh, uh, sort of the sort of universalist way of looking at Jesus uh, to sort of distract you from uh, what, uh, knowing who the real Jesus is and then who his, who his true church is, what his true church is supposed to look like. Uh, but all that to say is that there are efforts from within the church as well, not just from outside of the church, that are trying to uh, 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 reorient us uh, to what is false or orient us to what is false and, take, and, and get our, our minds and, and hearts off of what is true. Uh, so, so we have to be more and more vigilant, uh, vigilant and more diligent uh, for false teaching, for, for heresies, that are coming from within the church as well as from outside. Yeah. And, and the suffering is a way of cleansing that exactly right. church. Well, I want to move to now a set of questions here related to the upcoming elections or elections in general. A lot of great questions here, and I'm going to uh, give the first one to Phil. Uh, the question is this. John MacArthur wrote, Why Government Can't Save You. And in his recent open letter to the California governor, he says that there is no political solution to what ails our society uh, now, Pastor John generally stays out of partisan politics, but why did he then endorse Trump in the 2020 election? <laughs> okay, that's a long, uh, the, here's a long answer to that. I'll, <laughs> I'll try not to monopolize the rest of the conversation. Uh, w- what he said wasn't an endorsement of Trump. John has always stayed out of um, partisan politics. What he was saying in that context was a criticism of the Democratic party platform. Here's the problem. We, as a church, have always stayed out of partisan politics. So if there are questions about, you know, taxation or whatever, the church is not going to weigh in on, on that. We render to Caesar what is Caesar's. The problem recently is that Caesar has been moving into moral areas 
that really pertain to the teaching of the church, trying to silence what we teach about marriage and gender and all of that. And that is so much part of the fabric of the Democratic Party platform that uh, John, who normally would stay steer clear of politics, uh, spoke about that and, uh, and said he didn't see how any Christian could support such a wicked platform that, that formally endorses abortion and, uh, you know, gender dysphoria and all these moral evils that are unraveling our society. Uh, it isn't that he delved into politics. It's that Caesar delved into biblical morality and began attacking it. So, uh, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't think it's proper to I've seen people online saying, well, John MacArthur said, if you don't vote for Trump, then you're not a real Christian. That is not what he said. What he said was he didn't see how any Christian could endorse a platform, the Democratic platform, that was filled with so much rank and obvious evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think the time has come where, well, and you see this in Scripture as well, when when Caesar begins to intrude on moral issues like that, it is time for the people of God to speak up and speak out and condemn it. That is what cost John the Baptist his life, because he said to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Again, it's a moral issue, which Herod wanted to treat as a political issue, and he saw it even as ultimately a capital crime. It cost John the Baptist his head. Uh, And like both you and Daryl have said, I think we're heading more to a time when Christians are going to have to, to face that sort of opposition and criticism. But uh, we, we must not uh, decide that, okay, because now the government is involved in legislating our acceptance of homosexuality, transsexual, uh, you know, transsexual behavior, and all those sorts of things, then now it's a political issue, so the church needs to get out of it. There are voices in the evangelical movement saying that, that as Christians, we'll lose our testimony to the world if we continue to say abortion is murder and and homosexuality is evil. Uh, That's that's folly to to conclude that those biblical principles have now become political, partisan political issues, and so we must steer clear of that. That, That's just utter folly. Those are biblical issues that the church has not only the right but the responsibility to speak clearly on. And if one set of politicians or both sets of politicians actually, and yeah. we face this problem in, in California where pretty much all of our people running for election are publicly supportive of abortion, for example. Mm-hmm. So who do you vote for? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I'm not going to even render an opinion on that. Yeah, but we'll to get say, to some of those questions, yeah. Except to say, as Christians, we have to continue to speak out against the evil of yeah. abortion and other major evils like that that have become now mainstream and, and normal and acceptable in our society. We still have to speak out, and we may have to face the consequences of that. So, so how do we respond to those Christians who, despite the fact that they see that Caesar is encroaching are calling for Christians to cede territory as he encroaches into morality and things related to religion. And you have Christians, very high-profile ones, saying, well, to the extent that, the, that Caesar does this, we just keep ceding the yeah. territory. Yeah, and I go back to the same verse I've been quoting, and it's an important text. 
because it's, it's actually in three of the Gospels where Jesus answers a question about taxation by saying, you render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, render unto God that which is God's. And I think people who are doing what you just described are actually rendering unto Caesar that which belongs to God. And that's, that's as bad as the opposite sin. So it's something you can't do. Now, there's a, a lot of questions that come out of that related to elections and, and endorsements and so on. And, and here's a question for all of you. How would you respond to the request that some believers would have to say, well, the church should take a more active role in endorsing candidates uh, or endorsing propositions and things like that to provide much more clarity to the people in the church? Maybe I'll start with you, Greg. How would you respond to that request? Essentially saying, look, we're members of the church. We want to know how to vote on these things. They do touch on morality. Can't the church give us the answer key? You're a teacher. that, That resounds with you. Yeah, I guess my answer would be, ask me. There are a lot of people who do, both at the church, at the school, and whatnot. Uh, it's, I'm not an elder. I'm a deacon, but I'm not an elder, so I defer to Phil. But telling people how to vote is, is, is not the church's job. It's not the church's role in the world. Telling people about issues that are biblical issues and then allowing people to decide, okay, this is a biblical issue, and allowing people to decide this is what I should do or shouldn't do, that I think is the church's role. Uh, and so I think there's a, there's a distinction there between those two things. Um, and so, uh, and, and Phil mentioned, especially in California, we have this problem where uh, so many times um, people running for higher office, especially governor and senator and so forth, uh, both candidates are pro-abortion. I have a personal rule. It's just a personal rule. I won't vote for anyone for a significant office who is pro-abortion. Uh, I'm not a single-issue voter, but I don't consider that just an issue. That's a matter of life and death. And so that's a separate thing entirely. So I don't vote for somebody just because they're pro-life, but I won't vote for them if they're not. So... Um, in California, you, you have the opportunity to write in votes, and so I write in votes almost every election. For governor and for senator, I voted for Dr. John Stead, my colleague at the college. I voted for my father-in-law, so you know Bob Houghton. Um, last time I voted for myself, for the Senate, just for fun, um, because there was no one I could vote for in those offices because they were pro-abortion. Uh, this election, there's a distinction there, which if someone wants to talk to me about it, we can. We actually have someone we could vote for, uh, for a higher office, and certainly at, at lower offices. But uh, I don't think it's the church's role to tell people specifically how to vote. I think it's the church's role to make people aware of moral stances on issues and to make them concerned about those to the extent that they're not willing to promote someone to office who's going to promote that thing. Which, one other thing, back in 2016, uh, we had a political summit up at the university, and it was Dr. MacArthur, myself, John Stead, and another guy. And um, it's actually the, the thing from the university that's gotten the most views online or whatever, something like a million um, and that was two weeks before the 2016 election, and we talked about specifically some of these issues. Um, and when it came to the, the Trump question, um, what I said, and 
I talk, and John and I talked during dinner before, and, and I think he had the same view. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't. <laughs> Sorry. I don't, I'm not sure if he did or not. But um, my view was that um, you had, I wasn't voting for an individual. They're both sinners. They're, so they're, in that sense, when you talk about the lesser of two evils, the lesser of two evils is still evil. Uh, so I didn't view it that way because they're both evil as individuals. But the, the key is, what are they going to do? That's the determining factor. And one of the two candidates promised to do evil, uh, campaigned on doing evil, and the other candidate campaigned on doing good. Whether he was going to do good or not, we didn't know at the time. Turns out he did. Uh, for example, point three pro-life justices among others and other levels of courts and so forth. But so I, I did not vote for Donald Trump. I voted against Hillary Clinton. Um, and I checked the box with Donald Trump's name as a vote against Hillary Clinton and in hopes that he would do good. Uh, and so I think that's, a, that's the way I look at it. And... Um, I can't speak for John. Would you have anything to add to that, uh, Daryl? Yeah, it's just interesting uh, listening to Phil and Dr. Fraser against uh, the ecclesiastical experience that I grew up in. Um, You have a candidate for a governor in my home state of Georgia, Stacey Abrams, right now, who is going from church to church to church on a pro-murder platform, outright, openly, overtly campaigning for the votes of primarily black Christians in urban churches all across the state of Georgia on a pro-abortion platform. Now, what's interesting about that is that when you look at the history of abortion, going all the way back to Margaret Sanger's Negro Project in 1939, it was bad enough that Margaret Sanger, who was a eugenicist, a hater of black people, she was able to propagate her Negro Project agenda with the help of black pastors. Hmm. Now, here we are in 2022... The same message is being propagated by professing black Christians. Stacey Abrams has campaigned, and in her campaign speeches in these churches, she will profess to have been raised by two pastors, including her mother and her father, which within the black church tradition, it is not unusual to have a woman as a pastor. She's campaigning on this. You have also Raphael Warnock, who pastors one of the most famous predominantly black churches in America, Ebenezer Baptist Church, the church that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once pastored. He is a self-proclaimed pro-choice pastor. And it's just interesting that any Christian, and this is a frustrating thing to me personally, you will forgive me, I hope, if, if, I, if I sound a little frustrated here, because it is, given the history of the 
decades of death that that abortion has meted out in black families especially. No other ethnic group has been decimated as much through abortion as black babies. That's a historical fact. Yet you have people like Warnock and Abrams in churches, behind pulpits, advocating that the murder of unborn image bearers of God is a virtue. Stacey Abrams on social media today can be seen in a video. I think she was being interviewed on MSNBC. She was questioned about the impact of the economy on families in Georgia. Increasing food prices, increasing gas prices. Her response was, well, the reason families are being impacted by these economic uh, metrics is because they have children. She said this. It's, it's, it's just unbelievable that we don't, that there are Christians out there who don't carry a biblical worldview into the voting booth. This woman is going from church to church to church. Warnock is going from church to church to church, getting applauded by congregations. Why? Because they look like them. Now, I don't want to go off on anything here, but th- 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 this, this is, the black church tradition is something not only that I've studied, but I've lived it. I've lived it. You have, within predominantly black urban churches, a hermeneutic of slavery still being preached. The significance of that is, is that if you're going to continue to preach a hermeneutic of slavery and woe is me, and you're still waiting for your Moses to lead you to the promised land, you can get an individual like a Stacey Abrams, you can get an individual like a Raphael Warnock to come into your church and preach deliverance to you. And they'll vote for him in droves. Despite the fact that they're telling you to your face that if you elect me, I'm going to make sure that women can legally go out and murder their unborn image bearers of God. I'm going to make sure that that remains legal. Now, how you juxtapose that, I have no idea. I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah, that is a great tragedy. Related to the issue of abortion and what has been, of course, uh, paramount in some of our thinking here recently was when Governor Newsom uh, paid for billboards in various states citing Mark chapter 12, verse 31 about loving your neighbor and using that as a proof text for abortion. And, of course, that, that, that lit Pastor John up and and, and motivated him to write the letter. And so I know, John or Phil, you were highly involved in that. Uh, could you give us a little bit of an update into the, kind of the behind-the-scenes, what, what Pastor John was thinking, and then also follow that up with what impact has that had? Has there been any response to it, either politically or even from other evangelicals? Uh, yeah, in fact, uh, just today I saw a draft of an article that's about to come out from NRB, the National Religious Broadcasters, um, talking about it and supporting John. They they included a quote that I gave them, um, and they've been basically supportive. Not all evangelicals have, but I think the ones that, the few voices that have been critical of John 
are those voices that would be critical of John no matter what he did. Yeah. You know, so I'm not too worried about that. They would just say it's another example of Christian nationalism or something yeah, like that. Yeah, sort of. And in fact, there has been some yeah. of that. Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm, not, I'm not really concerned about that. I would say that the majority of evangelicals have been very supportive and grateful that John that did what he did and said something. As far as I know, there's been no response uh, from the governor or any of the politicians in California. Um, so, no, no response, no response to that. I don't expect any. I didn't expect any when, when John issued the letter. But I think the, the, the reason for an open letter is because this was, this was an open transgression to begin with. Yeah. To take a passage from the Word of God and twist it so that you've, you've literally turned it on its head and made it to mean the opposite of what it actually teaches, uh, and to then billboard that across the nation is a, a sin so egregious. It doesn't surprise me that it stirred John MacArthur's righteous soul to anger and, yeah. and outrage, and I'm glad he expressed it in an open letter. The one criticism I've seen from a few evangelicals has been, why did this have to be an open letter? Why didn't he go to him <laughs> privately? Which you get that no matter any time you respond to someone's published or public uh, transgressions, mm-hmm. which that's not what Matthew 18 is about. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, I see what, what John did with Governor Newsom as a pretty close parallel to what John the Baptist did with Herod. And uh, that's how John saw it as well. That's what motivated him to do it. I had some, uh, in fact, John had a, a small group of us meet with him out at the Master's University uh, when he was planning to do this. And, uh, uh, you know, if I read his mood correctly and what he said, I think John was feeling a bit of regret that he hadn't done this earlier, that maybe, uh, m- maybe a public message like this was warranted long before he actually did it. So I'm glad it's had the impact it has. I'm glad it's gotten the publicity it has. Yeah. And um, I think it's done what John intended it to accomplish, uh, though we'd still like to see the governor repent. Yeah. Uh, I don't think anyone sees that coming. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll come back to this issue of abortion uh, as time permits here. I've got some other questions here related to voting. Uh, one, uh, uh, one question is as follows. Uh, I will be voting in the election for the first time in my life this November. What is the responsibility of voting as a good citizen and as a good faithful Christian? Would I be amiss if I decided not to vote? Is it a binding obligation? And am I glorifying God only when I vote for a biblically consistent candidate? So, uh, Greg, I'll put that first to you. The, the obligation of voting in this democracy. Yeah, people don't like when I say this. I said this, they asked me to say something at the university a couple weeks ago in chapel. Um, There's no biblical mandate to vote. It's not a biblical requirement. Uh, It's not something that that we're expected to do from a spiritual standpoint. I think there's a civic responsibility to vote, but even then, only if you know what you're doing. One of the main problems we have in America today is most of the people who vote are ignorant. I don't mean they're stupid. So you guys understand the difference, right? Stupid means you don't have capacity to know something. Ignorant means you don't know something. 
Okay, so I don't know what the inside of Phil's house looks like because I've never been there. That makes me ignorant of that, but I'm not stupid. So most American voters are ignorant. They don't pay attention. They don't know what they're doing, and that's gotten us into a whole lot of trouble. And so you have a civic responsibility to become informed and then vote intelligently, I think. But that's a civic responsibility. It's not a biblical command. It's not a biblical responsibility. A vote is a tool. It's like a hammer. It's a tool to try and accomplish some political things, to make political decisions. There's nothing sacred about it. Um, and it, and that, that, that's, that's, I think, just the reality of it. So I think if it, it behooves you to know what you're doing or talk to somebody who does, that's a, an age-old American... Uh, notion um, is going to uh, a cue take a cue giver, as we call it in political science circles, a cue giver, somebody who knows what 's going on that you that you agree with and that you and they can inform you so for example, voting for judges and so forth, I get a lot of people asking me for that because nobody knows anything about judges right so a cue giver can help you if you if you aren 't informed, uh, but you shouldn 't vote if you don 't know what you 're doing. You should vote, though. You should learn what to do and, and vote because that's a civic responsibility, but it's not a biblical mandate. Yeah, yeah agreed. Uh, and I would say even in the civic realm, voting isn't so much a duty as it is a privilege. Yeah. And I, I think it's wise to take advantage of that privilege as a citizen. But if you don't vote, I wouldn't say you've sinned uh, because there is no biblical command that would apply to that. I mean, you could argue... To him who knows to do good and does it not, it's sin. Or you could say rendering to Caesar in our culture would mean you want to be a good citizen, so you should educate yourself and vote. And I would say, okay, I mean, I accept, I accept the wisdom of those arguments, but I, I wouldn't accept someone who says this is a moral duty and you have sinned if you don't exercise your vote. There are a lot of people who just don't have the capacity to understand politics well enough to, to make an informed vote. In fact, I, I, I agree. I think that's true of most people who vote mm-hmm. based on the recent outcomes. Yeah. Of, <laughs> but, yeah. but, but as a Christian, um, you know, go, I go back to the other, the earlier question. Um, the, as, as Christians, as the church, we have a weapon that is much more potent to address what's wrong with our society. Uh, in your earlier question, you quoted John as saying, you know, the, the solution to what ails society is not a political solution. Um, there is a solution, though, and it's the gospel. And as the church, that should be our focus, not to say that uh, as Christians we should never concern ourselves with politics. We do, and that's legitimate, but we ought to be more concerned about spreading the gospel. And we would, I, I think really one of, the, one of the great failures of the 20th century is laid at the feet of the church where the gospel was eclipsed by other messages and, and the church didn't do her duty. And that's one of the big reasons our culture is in the state it's, it's in. And for the church to veer off preaching the gospel in order to become a political block, uh, try to use our clout in the voting booth to accomplish, uh, you know, what we ought to, what we want to see, 
Scripture says, if righteousness could come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. The answer to the unrighteousness of our society is not more laws. Uh, I want to see those laws because I do think they restrain evil, but they don't cure the problem, and the gospel does. So that's what we ought to be concentrating on. Yeah, I always tell people as well that, um, as you said, the solution to our problems is not electing the right president or just getting the right judge on the Supreme Court or a certain senator so somebody takes control of the Senate or whatever, because it doesn't address the problem of mankind, which is John 3.19. Men, men are sinners and they love their sin. Men love the darkness. And that's the cause of our problems, not political issues and so on. And ultimately, and as we've said before, God is on his throne and he's in charge of it anyway. But, we, but the church's role is to deal with the problem of man, which is that man loves the darkness. And so the, the real lesson here then is, yes, do your civic duty. However, if you're really concerned about the country, don't just think that a vote is going to be an, an investment in that. That's not comparable with preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel with your neighbor and being involved in, in outreach to the, to the lost. So. And I voted in every election since 1976. So I believe in voting. I teach political studies. I believe in political stuff. However, we have to keep it in in the proper perspective. That's the bottom line. A quick question here related to voting as well. Is there a difference between casting a vote and endorsing a candidate? You kind of touched on that. Maybe, Daryl, you can answer that. Uh, For example, for the the president, and and again, Greg, you kind of mentioned that with the the election between Trump and, and Clinton. But how can people their conscience rightly work in terms of going down the list and voting for this presidential candidate or this candidate for Senate or Congress and maybe not knowing as much as they should and wondering whether a vote for them is actually endorsing their lifestyle as opposed to casting a vote in favor of their platform. How do you work through those issues? I like what Dr. Fraser said earlier when he uh made the distinction between, you know, he, he stated, yeah, yeah, all, all politicians are sinners. P- politicians are sinners before they uh, go into office, they're sinners. While they're in office, they're sinners when they're removed from office. Uh, and he made the distinction. He said, hey, I, I, I voted for the one who promised to do good, who promised to do good. Um, I've said, uh, many, many times uh, when I'm at churches uh, across the country speaking, that one thing you have to remember as a Christian when you go into a voting booth, that you're not just voting for an individual, you're also voting for that individual's worldview. So there may be those, maybe Phil or Dr. Fraser, Fraser may disagree, but I think a, a candidate can't get more of an endorsement from a voter than for that voter to vote for them. Um, and that behooves us to study, uh, to, to do our own due diligence and study these candidates as much as possible to understand that when you vote for a person, you vote for their worldview. Um, you're bringing that worldview, you're helping to bring that worldview, the worldview of that individual into that elected office by which you, for which you're voting for them on. And we understand that, we have to understand that no, no politician goes into uh, politics uh, in a vacuum. There's an agenda that they carry with them, for better or worse. 
And I think that we are civically responsible, as Phil and Dr. Fraser said, to be informed voters. I don't think there's no, there, there's no more dangerous an individual, politically speaking, than an uninformed voter. To follow up on that, where do you get information? People are asking, okay, how do I become that informed voter when media is so skewed and biased, it's, you, you can't trust anything that's on the TV or the Internet. How do you educate yourself? And I'll ask all three of you as you do it personally. How do you educate yourself? Yeah, for, for me personally, um, my, my education politically begins by reminding myself what my parents taught me. Um, I know it's going to sound sort of flaky, kind of hokey maybe, uh, but what I do is I, under, I try to investigate what, what is this person's work ethic like? What is their, what does their family look like? Is, 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 is there any evidence of uh, um, uh, uh, infidelity if they're married? Uh, do they have a record of not telling the truth? Uh, do they have a record of keeping their word? Do they have a record of keeping their promises that they've made to their, to their spouses, to their children? Um, have, have they, uh, you know, are, are, do they have a reputation of hopping from one job to the next or, um, um, are, are they financially, uh, uh, uh stable or, uh, what does their, um, uh, history of, uh, of, uh, uh involvement in the in community or churches in that community look like. I just look for basic stuff. I mean, you, you're absolutely right, Brad. You, you really can't trust the mainstream media to report objectively on any individual because they all come into this with a bias as well. Uh, so you really have to do your homework. For me, I, I go to um, um, and do as many inter- internet searches as I possibly can to find news that, that is outside of the mainstream. I, I, I go to local community news stations uh, to see what those news stations are saying about these individuals. Go to those small town newspapers and find out what these newspapers are reporting these, in, in the hometowns, hometowns where these people grew up, where they worked. Uh, drill down deeper than what you're seeing on a national or even a state scale, and get as local uh, with respect to these individuals as you can. Drill, drill down and make that funnel as narrow as possible in terms of where you get your news or information from, either on the individuals or the issues that matter to you. But try to localize that as much as you can. That, that's one of the approaches yeah. that I take. Phil, what, what approach do you take? Yeah, and I may say this to begin with. I'm older than all you all because the first presidential election I voted in was 1972, and I voted for Richard Nixon, who famously said, I am not a crook, but he kind of really was. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I generally agree with everything Daryl just said. I think it's important to, I think it would be better, obviously, for us to have politicians whose moral lives are upright and who are trustworthy people. Um, but even that isn't always reliable because, uh, you know, you have a candidate like, say, Jimmy Carter, who uh, professed to be a Christian and and I think was basically a decent guy, but the policies he advocated were, in many cases, antithetical to what Scripture teaches. Um, so, to me, the fellow's personal life, while it's not unimportant, really isn't everything. I want to know, and I will vote based on what policies does he promise to uh, to use. And And 
politicians are notorious for making promises that they don't fulfill. Mm-hmm. So I've often been disappointed by that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you could look back on my record on Facebook. I was not a fan of Donald Trump when he first announced for president. I didn't vote for him the first time because I didn't like his moral character. I didn't trust him. I didn't think he would fulfill his promises. Uh, and I, I still don't think that his conservative bent is a matter of conviction as much as it is his vindictiveness against all the liberals who attack him. Mm-hmm. That's driven him to, the, to more conservative positions. Uh, but regardless of that, I think his conservative positions were manifestly better for the country and the economy and, and the peace of society, which Scripture commands us to pray for, First Timothy 2.2. Uh, so in that sense, he was a better president than the current one. I'm not afraid to s- – I mean, that's my personal opinion, yeah. and um, I'm not telling you how you should vote or should have voted. I, I don't like doing that as a pastor. Well, but, one of our guys actually wrote this in. He said, can't we use this as, a, as a, uh, just a, a proof text for voting? It's Ecclesiastes 10, verse 2. A wise man's heart directs him toward the right, but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. That's biblical. <laughs> it's pretty definitive. Yeah, I think yeah. that Solomon was pretty but wise. All of, all of that, what I'm trying to say is I, I, think, I think you have to make a distinction because people try to, try to say this about Christians who voted for Trump. How can you do that? He's such an evil man. Yeah. Well, I agree with that. I don't like his character, but I voted for him the second time he ran, because he had earned my trust with his policies. Um, and I think uh, that's, that's how you have to look at it as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Again, I appreciated what, what Greg said, that it's not, it's not a question of the lesser of two evils. Yeah, yeah. It's a question of which policy promotes the good and, and uh, suppresses the evil more than the other. Yeah. And that's how I vote. Now, the, the question you asked was, how do you educate yourself on yeah. that? Yeah. Well, I read a lot and try to study the candidate, the major candidates for myself, but there are these lists of judges and stuff that I don't have time or the inclination to do. So I go to Laurel Martin, who is a member of Grace Life, who Laurel was one of the first ever radio talk show hosts. She sort of paved the way for, you know, conservative talk shows. She was a L.A. talk show hostess back in the 60s and was deeply involved in uh, California politics before she became a Christian. And, and so was I before I became a Christian into politics. Both Laurel and I sort of gave up political activism uh, as Christians, but I, I've said this before, while politics interests me still, I don't put a lot of hope in it. But if I want to know who to vote for, I ask Laurel. She always has a sheet of... Uh, candidates and what there's good and what there's bad about them that she'll pass out to anybody who asks. Yeah. Yep. Greg, how would how do you educate yourself? Yeah, what he just said is the cue taking I was talking yep. about. Yep. If you have people that you trust, people who are in the know, it, it, there's no shame in asking somebody who knows, that, as, as there isn't in any other area of life, right? Yeah. If somebody has a cure for some disease, you don't say, well, I don't know it, and so I'm not going to take it. You go to somebody who knows, and you, and you take it. So that's a key element. Um, a simple way, the simplest way is to go to the candidate's website, Go to the candidate. They all, it's the social media world. They all have a website. 
So you, you have two candidates for an office. You go to their website, and you look at what they say. And you can figure out in 20 seconds whether you want to vote for them or not. In my case, I can look and find out whether they're pro-life or not. Then I know whether there's a chance I'll vote for them. If not, I'm done, and I move on. If there is, then I look at other stuff. Um, and so that's the simplest thing. Uh, a harder thing is to look at various media um, you look at Fox News and you look at CNN both. And you, and you try to get a balanced perspective by looking at the two of them. Or you go to various websites that uh, cover politics. And if you know which ones lean right and which ones lean left, then you look at a couple on this side, a couple on the, the other side. Um, but that's not for most people. So the simplest thing is to go to the websites of the candidates. And you can find out pretty fast um, about those. And, and you know, back to the Trump thing again, just to, you know, it, I, have a, I have some really good friends who I respect greatly who just could not bring themselves to vote for Donald Trump. And as I said, I didn't vote for Donald Trump either. I voted against the other person by checking his box. But anyway, they just couldn't bring themselves to do that because it was icky. You know, I can't, oh, this guy is such a terrible guy, I just feel icky. They don't say that, but that's what they mean. It would, it would be icky to vote for him. And I tell them, look, I'm an adult. I have reason. And reason can tell me to do icky things when it's necessary. I don't like colonoscopies. <laughs> They're icky. But I can, re- I can use my reason to say... I need to do this icky thing for a good reason, a good purpose. That's a great analogy, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 coming up with an, an, an analogy to that is the, uh, up, the, the election for a mayoral candidate for Los Angeles. It's like uh, going through a colonoscopy. But they're, they're both Democrats. They both support abortion. And the question here is, how, what do you do when you go for that? I'm going to write in my favorite senatorial candidate <laughs> this time. Actually, uh, I, I mentioned the first uh, time Trump ran, I didn't vote for him. I didn't vote for Hillary either. That would yeah. be even worse. Uh, I left the box blank, which I okay. could do with kind of impunity because we live in California and the election was decided by the time I voted anyway. Yeah. But uh, this is different because it does... It does directly affect us. I'll, I'll write in a candidate, uh, and I, I don't think there's any way living in Los Angeles to, uh, for Christians to ward off the, the, the flood of, uh, I was going to say liberal, but they're not really even liberal, just far left, yeah. uh, radical, even socialist, communist, yep. evil people who run for office. Uh, I mean, look at our, our current district attorney, yeah. who there have been two efforts to yeah. depose him, and both failed. So I think there's too many ignorant voters in the Los Angeles yeah. area for us to, to overturn that. Uh, so I'll write in a candidate and pray that yeah. the Lord in his providence will protect us from the worst evil that yeah. these yeah. politicians want to do. Darryl. Yeah, I just want to tag along... Uh, behind something uh, Dr. Fraser just said when he talked about how we have reason and we have intellect. I think it's interesting uh, being a part of a conversation like this where we're talking about essentially each of us voting on the basis of our individual conscience, which, which I think is 
fantastic. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm listening to it and I'm engaging in this conversation against the background of my own experience having grown up in the quote-unquote black church. And if you ever hear me use that term, just go ahead and assume air quotes, where even today the, um, uh, the, um, the ethos is to vote as a collective, as a collective, collective ethnic group not on the basis of individuality, not on the basis of drawing your own conclusions about a particular candidate, you would be considered anathema and be ostracized from that community if you do not subscribe to an ethno-tribalist political paradigm in going to a vote and in going into the voting booth. So I think it's really interesting here where we're talking freely amongst ourselves that, yeah, ultimately, uh, you're going to vote as an individual on the basis of what your own conscience uh, dictates you do. Uh, but there are other uh, spheres and areas within evangelicalism where that is frowned upon. Um, and that is still a, uh, a hurdle, a huge hurdle within evangelicalism that has yet to be overcome. Um, uh, the, 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 the degree to which 90-plus percent of black Americans can be, can predictably, can be predicted to vote along one party line and then have the other 10% or less viewed as traitors to their race or sellouts or Uncle Toms, um, house Negroes, any other epithet that you want to put out there uh, so it's, 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 it's really interesting to engage in this conversation where we're talking freely amongst ourselves to, 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 to encourage uh, folks to vote informed as individuals, whereas, uh, you know, outside these walls, there's a space um, and, and, and places within the church whereby that is not uh, looked upon in a positive light at all. Oh, the, the, very helpful, and we've got a lot of questions here, and I know our time is up, so I, I want to focus on just a few more as we close here and perhaps have some shorter answers to this. Uh, Phil, I want to come back to you as an elder here at, at Grace Church, dealing more with the, the broader culture here. How has the political and cultural instability in the last two years affected our church here? How would you say it's, how would you value that? Well, it's had that? both positive and negative uh, effects, but I would say, as far as Grace Church is concerned, yeah, it's been largely positive. I think the church has grown and and, and become strong uh, because of some of the external pressures that we've been under. First, with the COVID thing, but also with these moral issues, and uh, it's it's given us a voice because of John MacArthur's boldness mm-hmm. that I think has has sort of catapulted the testimony of our church collectively uh, to, to a higher level, and I'm glad for that. I, I, I am not glad for the, the moral meltdown of society all around us, but uh, we keep saying, look, God is on the throne. He's sovereign. And I think you see that in the health and growth of, of Grace Church and other churches like ours. When I said at the very beginning, uh, the thing that encourages me is I think the remnant is getting larger. Yeah. You see that in microcosm right here in our church. Yeah, good. That's helpful. Question for you, Dr. Fraser. Uh, the question relates to the integrity of the elections. Uh, 
and again, just a short answer on this. In light of California, where the, the, the Democrats have a supermajority, there's a suspicion that there's, there's no integrity to the elections here anyway. But even more nationally, there's been a lot of talk in the last two years of the lack of, of integrity in the elections, lack of transparency. Uh, how, how do you advise Christians to handle that discussion with, with coworkers and family members about election integrity and how to relate to those whatever results come in that, that we have to accept that? There's two different ways to answer that. One is it depends on who the family members and coworkers <laughs> are and how invested they are in it. And the answer to that, if they're really invested in it, is don't talk to them about it because <laughs> um, you can't win unless you just go along with whatever they say. Um, every election in American history has had things that have been cheating and done wrong and so on and so forth. That's, it, it's every election at every level. There are, there are um, abnormalities, there are things that are done wrong, and so on and so forth. Um, that's just a reality, that's just a fact. Do they, are they at the level that it changes, would have changed the result of the election? Very, very rarely. Um, and so, and it, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's fruitful just for your own well-being to get too heavily invested in something that isn't going to change. Um, I, I was asked to speak in one of the fellowship groups the week after the 2020 election. And, and I was talking about what to do in biblical society and so, or in political society. And I said, and I was going through the things that we must do that the Bible says, one of which is to pray, to pray for our leaders. And I said, we need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for, and I listed various people, and I included President Biden and Vice President Harris. And someone came up afterwards and was livid. You don't know that they're the president and the vice president, blah, blah, blah. And I said, yes, I do because I know the process. And there's no, even if there was something that was done, there isn't enough time between now and when the inauguration is to prove that. And so he's going to be the president one way or another. And No, no, you don't know. No, no. So um, it, I don't think it's very fruitful to get too heavily invested in that, especially in light of the fact, again, that God is sovereign. And so... Is it, am I saying we should just look the other way and not be concerned? No, you do all the investigation, you do all that stuff and so on, but don't make it the center of your life. You know, ask, ask politicians who are in power to investigate things and whatnot and hope that something will happen. But, but to make that the center of your life, I just don't think is healthy in any way, especially spiritually, because then you're, your focus is entirely wrong, in my humble opinion. Mm-hmm. So, yes... Cheating goes on; it always does. Uh, I don't think it generally makes it, you know, changes the result. But even if it does, again, God is sovereign, and if you want to support people who want to investigate it and whatnot, great. That, that's that's fine. But don't get too wrapped up in it. Okay. A question for you, Daryl. Here, as we come to a close now, uh, this one relates to uh, issues pertaining to. Uh, critical race theory. And so the question is, what resources do you recommend in light of the fact that critical race theory is becoming so widespread, both at the popular level and at the advanced, more scholarly level, 
on the historical, philosophical, and theological history of the modern social justice movement and how it, it is connected to, to classical Marxism. So a little Remember bit that this man makes three-hour podcasts. Yeah, I, I know. We, you, I'm just asking for some recommendations, right. titles, and uh, that will uh, kind of close things out for tonight. Yeah, so uh, I, I was able to uh, take a look at this question in advance uh, Thanks to uh, thanks to Brad, and what I did was I uh, I thought it easier to respond to this question by making uh, a few copies, very few copies, like ten or so copies of several titles, several resource titles that I have from my personal uh, library that I've read. Uh, I think there's like 141 titles uh, here, but I have only very few copies of those. Uh, so if the questioner is here tonight, um, I, I invite you to come down and grab. Uh, a copy of these. It's just sort of easier for me to answer the question that way. Unfortunately, there are very, very few uh, biblical resources out there that will walk you through a history of the social justice movement, the origins of critical race theory, and its uh, interconnectedness to Marxism. Um, you've got uh, Vody Bachman's book, uh, Fault Lines, out there. You've got uh, Owen Strand's book, uh, Christianity um, and Wokeness. But what I like to say as it relates to these issues of, uh, especially when it comes to critical race theory and sort of exegeting what that uh, worldview is all about, I like to, to describe it this way. Any of you who are familiar with the Godfather trilogy of movies, I think it was in Godfather Part Two where young Michael Corleone says uh, to one of his uh, hired hands, it may have been to Tom, his uh, attorney, he said, um, you know, my father always taught me to keep my friends close, but my enemies closer. And that's the approach that I take when it comes to um, critical, critical race theory. What you have to do is read your enemies. You have to read their books. You have to go out, buy their books, and read their books, read what they think, read what they themselves are saying um, out of their own mouths. Um, the one of the one of the foundational books as it relates to getting uh, your feet wet, if you will, around critical race theory, is a book by um, uh, Gene Stefanik, and uh, I've got it right here, actually. Yeah, uh, Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanik, uh, Critical Race Theory: An Introduction. This is this is this is considered the primer uh, for critical race theory. So if you're if you're unfamiliar at all with with what critical race theory is. These, uh, this book is written by the probably uh, the two most, uh, two foremost advocates of critical race theory in the country today. They're both Marxists, uh, and they're they're married, although they don't have the same uh, surname. It's Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanik. Critical race theory: an introduction. This will in, to give you an introduction to the basic tenets and precepts of critical race theory. It won't overtly reveal to you its connections to uh, economic and cultural Marxism. But you do find some of the terminology in here. You'll find some of the uh, uh, pillars upon which critical race theory um, is built. Uh, but again, to answer uh, more broadly the, the question that was asked, it would take far too much time than we have tonight to basically recommend specific resources, only to say that I did uh, make copies of some here, and you're welcome to avail yourself of them. Thank you, Daryl. 
Uh, oh, yes. yes. Um, yeah, I recommend that you listen to the Just Thinking podcast. I believe it's uh, episode 99 where my co-host Virgil Walker and I did a nearly four-hour expository podcast on critical race theory. Uh, uh, with all due respect and humility, you will not hear another breakdown of critical race theory like that. Uh, take your time listening to it. But, again, it's, uh, it's the Just Thinking podcast. Download it and then just scroll down to the episode on critical race theory. Uh, it's a nearly four-hour breakdown of that worldview. That's number 99. Yeah. Episode number okay. 99. I believe it's episode 99, yeah. Okay. Well, Phil, I'm going to give you the last word here. I, we, we quoted the title of Pastor John's book, The Government Can't Save You. So as we close our time and address the, the people in the room here, what does save you? So if you just end with that. Right, the gospel, because it is the answer to the massive problem that ails the entire world and always has throughout human history. Um, And uh, we dare not, as a church, blend it with other artificial or lesser remedies. There's a a famous uh, statement in Will Durant's History of the World. After he deals with, uh, with Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell, and the his career, he makes a comment at the very end where he says, no one has yet figured out how to blend the gospel with political power mm-hmm. or something like that, uh, which goes with what Jesus said. Uh, he says the rulers of this world, they, they want to have dominion over one another. But he says, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be first among you needs to be a servant of all. And and so the gospel teaches us to humble ourselves because we are fallen sinners with no ability to help ourselves and desperately in need of a Savior, and Christ is that Savior. And as He saves individuals from the guilt and power of their own sin, that, that throughout history has had more of a positive impact on societies than all the political efforts in the world. And, and woe to the church that forgets that principle. We need to preach the gospel and, and tell people that there is a Savior who holds the answer to the problem that ails not only the whole world, but each of us individually. Yeah. Would you close our time in prayer and, and uh, pray for your colleagues here and for these men as they approach the voting booth in a couple of weeks here, and and even for our church as we continue to take a stand and be a light in a very dark and troubling world. Sure. Father, you've commanded us to be lights that shine to the world and not to hide our light under a bushel, Uh, and yet we know that that light is the gospel. It's not our political clout or our philosophical opinions or any of those things. May we be faithful Uh, heralds of the gospel. And I pray for each man who's here tonight as we've considered some difficult issues. Help us to think wisely. Help us to think biblically. And may in everything we do, from the voting booth to the privacy of our own homes, may everything we do glorify Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.